There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Afua Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love she Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. In the noble and chivalric world in which Henry VIII operated, the paramount place for demonstrating physical strength and manly courage was the joust, and Henry excelled at it. The Venetian ambassador Sebastian Distiniani noted on one occasion in the 15-teens, After dinner, a stately joust took place at which His Majesty jousted with many others strenuously and valorously. This most serene king is not only very expert in arms and of great valour and most excellent in his personal endowments. His secretary, Niccolo Sagadino, also noted that the king excelled all others, shivering many lances and unhorsing one of his opponents. In 1517, at a great joust in honour of the French ambassadors, the king wanted to joust against all 14 competitors – but we're told this was forbidden by the council, which moreover decreed that each jouster was to run six courses and no more, so that the entertainment might be ended on that day. Nevertheless, when Henry presented himself before the Queen and the ladies, he made, we're told, a thousand jumps in the air, and after tiring out his horse, mounted one of those ridden by his pages, a pattern he repeated constantly over the course of the day until the end of the joust. To learn more about what jousting was why Henry liked it so much, how it was scored, what it cost, and the culture of honour, manhood and physical chivalry that it embodied, I'm joined by Dr Emma Levitt. Dr Levitt's PhD from the University of Huddersfield focuses on masculine displays in the medieval tournament under Edward IV and Henry VIII. Her research focuses on kingship, chivalry and above all jousting. And her most recent publication is a fascinating chapter on Henry VIII's planned tomb and what it can tell us about his manly, knightly and warrior status, which you can find in a book called Memorialising Pre-Modern Monarchs, Medias of Commemoration and Remembrance, published by Palgrave Macmillan. And it is the subject of Henry, of jousting and of manliness that is our topic today. Thank you.
thank you so much for joining me today. Dr. Levitt, I should say, really. Thank you. And it's wonderful to have a chance to talk about this. I once learnt to just. I sort of learnt to just. They gave me a lance, which basically was a piece of balsam wood, as far as I can tell, and would have broken at first encounter, and sent me to sort of ride down a tilt. But the person opposite me wasn't given a lance. So I think that says a lot about how <laughs> skilled they thought I would be. <laughs> but anyway, it was really enjoyable. And so I'm really keen to talk about the ins and outs of jousting and why it was so important. But perhaps we should start more generally. Let's talk about the various feats of arms and the styles of combat that might make up a tournament and what each involved. Yeah, so... Early in the 11th and 12th century, tournaments as they first sort of originated were more like huge mock battles and it was very similar to medieval warfare and that you would have hundreds, even thousands of knights on two opposing teams who would, on a given signal, crash into each other and the aim in those early competitions was about capturing knights and holding knights at ransom and also capturing horses as well because they were valuable and it wasn't at all managed it wasn't regulated it wasn't even confined to a tournament ground as we would see it today and it would have been really difficult to gauge that individual performance of a man which is something that as we move on to talk about Henry obviously really needs as part of his kind of performance of manhood and so yeah they were extremely dangerous lots of deaths would occur and that was kind of how they originated and then as we go through the centuries it's not until the 13th century that we get that single combat that you were talking about where you have the two knights opposing ends of the list charging into each other but even then it was extremely dangerous because we didn't have the tilt barrier to separate the contestants and so you have the horses that could just crash into each other and in those sort of 13th century jousts it is about unhorsing your opponent as well so it's about knocking the opponent out of the saddle and sometimes this would be with sharpened lances in a joust of war and sometimes this might be with blunted lances as a joust of peace but either way extremely dangerous and replicating what you would see in medieval warfare. Early on, you might find knights who are wearing their field armour for these competitions, but that definitely changes when you move into the 15th century. And it's then that I guess we see the tournament as we probably know it today, which is a lot more complex and there are different forms of competition. So you have the joust, you have the tourney and that's kind of a broken down form of the Malay big style tournament that we had in the 12th century. So you have groups of knights on horseback with swords and a bit like the joust they would deliver strokes to their opponents and they would start to be scored as well and then the third part of that tournament was the foot combat. So you would have knights fighting on foot and it might be with pole axes, it might be with staffs, clubs, swords. So you have these three stages of competition in the 15th century and it is a lot more regulated and we do start to have prizes and score checks and rules that are introduced. Yes, and I want to ask you all about that in a second. These things seem to be very costly to hold a tournament. Is that right? Were they very expensive? Yes, I think earlier on, because it's more that training for warfare, I think the emphasis is put on the fighting. But I think by the 15th century, under Edward IV, he really wants to revive the English court and chivalry as well and restore its honour and prestige after the kingship of Henry VI. 
So the spectacle becomes as important as the fighting. And you see this introduction of pageantry and allegorical tales and it's really heavily influenced as well by what's happening on the continent so the Burgundian court is known for its glamour and how rich it is and spectacle there is really important and so that's kind of soaked up by Edward IV and his sister actually goes on to marry Charles the Bald so he's really heavily influenced by that Burgundian tradition that kind of trimmings that goes around the fighting activity really and we start to see pageant carts that are brought in these obviously have quite a practical function because they can carry the jousts but also it's that display and that entrance into tilt yard so you get the horses that start to be dressed up the knights are dressed up the armor becomes more expensive we get the introduction of plate armor and i think one of the estimates of a tournament in 1511 that henry has at westminster which is really well documented probably one of the most famous tournaments that we probably all are aware of that is set to cost about £4,000 and that's twice as much as what Henry would spend on a great warship, just to kind of put it into context. So incredibly expensive. And even Henry VII, I think sometimes his court gets a little bit overlooked. We think of him as being quite maybe fiscal and conscious about money and maybe a bit more serious as a monarch but actually his Westminster tournament that he holds the Prince Arthur and Catherine of Aragon celebrate their wedding that involves allegorical animals there are pageant carts there are mountains disguises dwarfs giants so you have this whole pageantry a huge celebration really that becomes part of the tournament fighting as well so yeah I think the cost definitely starts to go up in the 15th and 16th century and it becomes a bit more of an event. It's not just about the fighting. So that's really interesting. We've got this kind of shift going on from it being a training for battle to becoming a kind of symbol of that. Yeah, I think it is more kind of a symbol of martial activity. I don't think it was taken seriously as a means to prepare for warfare. And I think as well, alongside the tournament changes, the nature of warfare has changed as well in the 15th and 16th century. So the men at arms are not as important because you've got the increased use of firearms. So I think alongside that, because the nature of warfare has changed as well, it's not necessarily replicating anymore what a men at arms would do on the battlefield. But I do think there's a lot to be said still about the training for warfare in terms of the strength and the exercise and what men's bodies go through in the tournament. You know, Henry at the start of his reign hasn't been able to prove himself on the battlefield. And we do have lots of tournaments in the 1510s, 11s and 12s. So he clearly saw it as an opportunity to kind of showcase some martial skills because he inherited his throne, unlike Edward IV and Henry VII. He hasn't had the opportunity to prove himself in that context. So for him, I do think it still has a value in horsemanship skills, riding skills. You know, you're carrying extremely heavy armour that might weigh up to 40 or 50 kilos. You've got limited vision. You're travelling down a tilt barrier around 25 miles per hour on a tournament horse. The moment of impact is double that and you're carrying a lance that's about three to four metres in length. So I do think there is skills involved that are still valuable and transferable to the medieval battlefield, if not just in the training itself. 
and the courage and the bravery that you need to be able to put yourself in that position. So you've explained why it was difficult to do and it clearly is serving multiple functions I suppose at this point in time one of which is presumably pleasure Henry VIII among others at his court seems to really enjoy the thrill of jousting what do you think it was about it that drew him to it and perhaps this also could be answered in part by what has drawn you to writing about it I think for Henry it is the opportunity because it's him in single combat you can really gauge his performance and I think in the tilt yard I think Henry gets to be a man as other men and it's not about status obviously you have to have a certain level of status to be able to enter into the tilt yard because the cost of armor is so great and the cost of a tournament horse and you need that training background which I'm not going to get if you're a man of low status but I do think that skill is the equaliser in the tilt yard and it does give Henry the opportunity to fight against knights who are the best at what they're doing in there so Charles Brandon who is well established as the best jouster at course if you like in the 16th century Henry is able to fight against a man who is probably his better in that pacific context And he gets to really test and prove himself as a man, not as a king, because that manly hierarchy operates very differently to the court. Because if you are a man of middling status like Charles Brandon, you can find yourself at the head of that manly hierarchy above a king or a duke early on before he becomes a duke. And so I think for Henry, there's probably a thrill in being able to compete against men that he really deems to be manly and beat them on occasion. But I think as well, just that performative aspect, these are watched by the court, they're watched by crowds. There's not many opportunities in the 16th century as someone of lower status to be able to come and see these men of court, these men of noble status, a king competing. You might have captured them kind of on procession, but not really in this context. I think the crowds that accompany it, the fact that he's really highlighted in this arena... It's single combat. He gets to showcase and kind of show off, I guess, his manly abilities. I think that's what really draws it for Henry. And I think for me, it's just a platform that's not really been spoken about in the historiography around Henry. So I think we have maybe treated it as a pastime or a bit of a frivolous hobby. But I think there's so much that we can unpack in jousting that we've maybe not thought about before and I think the fact that Henry as a king really wants to compete in it we should take it seriously as an aspect of his kingship. I think you're absolutely right and I definitely want to come back to that idea. I am aware that we're assuming all sorts of knowledge here so let's go back to the basics and explain precisely what it is that happens in a joust. You mentioned that the tilt barrier was a relatively new invention so tell us about that and also What were the rules? Yeah, so in the 15th century, we get a tilt barrier that is added under Edward IV's kingship. And because of this, we need a new set of rules. So I imagine there were rules under Edward III in the 13th century and the 14th century as well, when you have quite a lot of tournaments that happen in Richard II's reign. But they were without a tilt barrier. So Edward IV needs to refashion these rules. And John Tiptoff, Earl of Worcester, who's the Constable of England, he spent some time on the continent and he's been at the Italian court and he's watched Strauss taking place. And he's come back and, I guess, modelled 
these English jousting rules on what he's seen abroad, which I guess makes sense because if you have knights that are coming from all over Europe to compete at different courts, you need a bit of a standardised set of rules. And so we have these rules that he puts together and it's for jousting over a tilt barrier. And if you strike a man on the head, then that will count as two points. If you strike a man on his body, that counts as one point. And if you hit a man, but you don't break a lance, that's less than a point. So you do have this scoring system, which is arguably quite objective because it's based on men being able to make hits on certain parts of the body and then being awarded certain points. And it's clearly a framework that they trusted to score them because we don't get any instances of knights who kind of question the scores at any point. So they obviously trusted this system. And I think as well, it dispels any ideas that kings who took part were just automatically given a prize because of their status, actually it is scored objectively. And likewise, if you were to commit a penalty, so if you were to hit your opponent below his saddle, if you were to hit the tilt barrier, if you were to hit a horse, you would be deducted points as well. So they are really conscious about regulating this competition now. And I think it is a lot more technical because you have to really make those hits to get the points and to hit a man on his head at high speeds with limited vision as a moving target is extremely difficult to do. It's not something that they do now in modern day reenactments. It's far too dangerous. They just stick to the body. But back in Henry's reign, we still have knights making hits on the head. And so, yeah, there are prizes that are awarded and it could be a ruby ring. It might be a diamond ring, a gold chain, a gold clasp a belt so these are all items of jewelry as well that could be worn and i guess they're quite visible as a talking point at court of you having been successful in a tournament and i guess as a modern day comparison the super bowl rings that you would wear for having been successful in a super bowl i guess that's modern day comparison if you like and you've spent some time studying these jousting score checks, haven't you? Kind of decoding them. Can you explain what they look like? Yeah, so we have about half a dozen that survive from the reign of Henry VIII. There aren't any early ones that we have. And we have a couple from Henry VII's reign that are written into manuscripts. But if you just imagine a rectangular box on the top line that acts as the man's head, so you might get a dash through that line if you've hit someone on the head, the middle line of that rectangle would be the man's body and the bottom line would count as the penalties. Then there's a line that goes straight through the rectangle all the way across the other side and that will tally how many courses they've ran. So effectively how many times they've ran down the tilt yard, how many matches. So they are fascinating to look at and it's amazing that we have them surviving from Henry's reign. We have about half a dozen in the College of Arms And we know that there was about roughly 50 tournaments that I've calculated that take place in his reign and probably many more that were not main ones that were just between groups of courtiers. And they're really hastily scribbled by heralds. So heralds are a bit like the modern day referees or sport commentators who would mark down the knights. So you would have probably a herald who would mark down the challengers and then a herald who would score the answerers, those that would answer this tournament challenge. I imagine it might even be like a modern day kind of sports table where you have the winner of each day, because sometimes these tournaments may go on for two, three days. So I imagine it might even be a bit of a leaderboard where you could kind of see who was top for that day. And there'd be a prize award of the answerers and the challengers. 
But yeah, we do have a lot more surviving from Elizabeth I's reign, the College of Arms. And I will say they're a bit neater and they look a bit more formulaic as if they've got used to the practice of scoring jousting and they may be even written up in advance. But the ones from Henry VIII's reign are really interesting because they are quite scribbled as if they were actually being used on the day. So it may be that some of those from Elizabeth's reign are fair copies and the ones from Henry's reign are actually there in the midst of the action. And I find it interesting that we've got challengers and answerers so we've got a sort of team sense going on as well as it being an individual sport, which is quite interesting that people can distinguish themselves individually. I suppose footballers can distinguish themselves individually while being part of a team. Maybe it's not that unusual. I find it interesting as an idea. And I suppose they have got to be joust ready. So they've got to be doing a lot of training for each of these occasions or the number that you found. So how are they getting ready for those tournaments? The tournament training, you get lots of examples of this in the letters and papers that survived from Henry VIII's reign. You can read them online at British History Online. They're brilliant to have a look at. And it'll say something like the king was tilting at the ring or the king was running at the ring. And running at the ring would basically be a ring suspended from the tilt barrier and a knight would charge down with his lance and then basically try and spear the ring. And you see this, actually, if you go to a National Trust at English Heritage site and they're putting on joust, a bit of the warm-up exercises, if you like, before the main joust happen, are knights running around the tilt yard with their lance trying to spear a ring. Or running at the quintain is another term as well. So early on in the reign, in 1509, the Venetian ambassador actually records Henry running at the ring so he's clearly practicing very early on in the reign and I think it just shows that he's straight away determined to take part in tournaments. We get examples as well a bit later on so he's clearly having to keep up with this practice. The Earl of Essex, he's an interesting character. So what I quite like as well is that each period you get knights who become more well-established, who kind of retire, if you like, and then train up these younger noble sons and gentrymen. So Charles Brandon is one of a number of knights who goes along to the Earl of Essex London home. And there it's a bit like a chivalric finishing school, I imagine, where he's been trained and his uncle is a master of the horse as well. So he gets a lot of knowledge about how to take care of horses and the king's horses. And these young nobles will fight together. In Henry VII's reign, we get the King of Spears. It's like a group of martial galleons. And these men, again, they take part actively in jousts and tournaments. And I imagine the training would be, as well as running the ring where you're practising agility and accuracy and hitting a target, just practising horse riding skills together. You can imagine them all training at this kind of chivalric school of the Earl of Essex. So yeah, I think it requires a lot of upper body arm strength. You have to spend a lot of time in the saddle, build up muscular legs. I do think an aspect of masculinity, as much as we've been talking about performance and pageantry, I think there is an aspect that is about physicality. And you can see this early on when you look at Henry's surviving armour. He's physically in really good shape in terms of his chest measurements and his waist measurements as well. So I think, you know, you don't get that kind of body shape from not training. So they clearly have to put in a lot of hard work as well. Yes, I suppose even just thinking about it, you've got to control the horse, which of course we know involves one's legs. And so there's lots and lots of leg work going on there. Perhaps you're controlling the reins with one hand 
but you've got the lance under the other. As you say, there's lots of upper body strength, keeping yourself poised in your seat of the saddle. I mean, it does sound quite exhausting and does explain why we've got, was it 42 inch chest? I always think he has a sort of figure of a kind of rugby player early in his life. And obviously it descends later when he is unable to joust. But perhaps that's part of the point of it. It's after he can't joust that he loses that physique that he's had. Yeah, definitely. I think early on, like you said, he has like a 42-inch chest and sort of a 35-inch waist. So his chest is a lot broader, which kind of fits in with that upper body arm strength that you would need. And I think, yeah, later on, we've got a surviving armour of Henry VIII from the Greenwich tournament in 1540. It always struck me as fascinating because it isn't a tournament that Henry competes in. By this point, he's way past middle age. And yet he has this amazing splendid suit of plate armour made for him and you get a real sense of his body measurements because this armour is so bespoke and it's made to fit the individual I think as well as looking at portraits that we can look at and the Holbein one as being the most famous iconic image of how he's really grown in shape I think the armour actually gives the better indication of that life cycle of manhood I think by that point Henry is almost 50 I think his waist has gone up to about 51 inches he's chest is 54 so he's colossal in size by this point and it must have been because of his jousting accident that he can't no longer work out as well as his high calorie diet he's not able to sustain that figure which is why I think as well that jousting is reserved primarily for younger men I think there is exceptions to the rule Henry Norris joust at 54 so he's one of the oldest jousters that I've come across but a lot of jousters tend to retire around 40 late 30s And when you look at the ages of man cycle in the 16th century and framework of ages, that is when you're really hitting middle to old age. So it makes sense that you would joust between sort of 25 up to 40. And that's when we see a lot of jousters retire. I know Brandon jousts up until he's 40. So I think there is a bit of a correlation as well between ages of man's life cycle and having to maintain that body. I think the demands that are put on them is maybe oft times overlooked as well. That's really interesting. So, I mean, in terms of naming Henry Norris and Charles Brandon, these are some of the most important people at Henry's court who are distinguishing themselves through jousting. And I'm thinking also of Nicholas Carew, who appears in a portrait from the early 1530s in jousting armour. Are there other jousting stars at Henry VIII's court? Yeah, so there's like a jousting group, definitely, that Henry associates himself with. And I think this group is really interesting because, again, I think it's a group that is often overlooked. I think when we think about the men in Henry's reign, we think about the main players, the Walses, the Cramners, the Cromwells. But we don't really talk about William Compton, who is the first man that he enters a tilt yard with, who is the groom, the stool. So he has this really intimate position And I think it's Wolsey who's going through his will and all these manners and houses and things that have been awarded to him because of his relationship with the king that's been cemented through jousting is someone that we don't look at. Like, say, Nicholas Carecrew is painted in his jousting armour, so that's a really key part of his identity. You've got Henry Norris, who is seen to be the closest thing that Henry has to a friend. Again, he becomes his groom the stall, someone that he has to trust intimately to have that position. Thomas Nevitt's a really close friend of Henry. You've got Henry Guilford. He becomes the control of the household and the wardrobe. Charles Bandron is probably the closest thing that he has to a best friend. The fact that he survives throughout the reign, being so close to Henry 
and that Henry commissions his burial at St George's Chapel as a non-royal. So you do have these men that formulate relationships with Henry through the tilt yard that I think are overlooked in history, but yet they have really intimate, long-lasting relationships with the king. Brandon sustains his relationship. He becomes a duke, he becomes a knight of the garter. He marries the king's sister. And the only sort of area where he dominates in any way is jousting in the tilt yard. He's not really involved in other aspects of kingship. And it might be because of his relationship with Henry, sustained by jousting, that he doesn't get in terrible trouble, or the trouble doesn't last when he does marry the king's sister. What caused the anarchy? How did medieval migrants shape the language I'm speaking right now? Who won the Hundred Years' War? Could England's lost patron saint be buried under a tennis court in Suffolk? How did England's last medieval king end up under a car park? And were the Dark Ages really all that dark? I'm Dr Kat Jarman. And I'm Matt Lewis. On Gone Medieval, we'll uncover the most exciting and unexpected stories about the Middle Ages, hearing from the best and brightest minds. We will disentangle fact from fiction, bring you the latest discoveries, and reveal how the so-called Dark Ages laid the foundations for much of the world we're living in today. Subscribe to Gone Medieval from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Don Wildman. And on American History Hit, my expert guests and I journey across the nation and through the years to uncover the stories that have made the United States. From first flight to first ladies... From stitching the Star-Spangled Banner to striking gold in California to shooting for the moon with Apollo. We've got you covered. Catch new episodes of American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit, every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk about Henry himself, because we've touched on him again and again. We know that he was this athletic and exuberant young king. As you've said, that he jousted as soon as he could after his father's death. He's described as being a capital horseman and a fine jouster. And let's think about this idea that you alluded to earlier, that jousting has often been seen as a sort of form of entertainment and pleasure, which it definitely was. But to think of it only as that feels like it's misunderstanding its sort of fundamental political importance. How essential was it that Henry himself competed? What functions did that serve? I think that's a really key question because there are examples of other monarchs throughout the medieval period who hold tournaments but choose not to compete. And Henry could have quite easily sat back and sponsored tournaments and not competed and retained honour. And I think the fact that he feels the need to actively compete... For me, 
that's about the type of king that he wanted to be. And I think we often place Henry's reign as maybe starting this new era. And we think of him as doing something new and something different as this Renaissance monarch. But I think Henry is always looking back and looking to models of kingship from the past. So Henry V is his big role model, Ebb the Fourth, even maybe to some extent with the Battle of Bosworth, his father, but definitely Ebb the Fourth as well, the tournament, Ebb the Third. And I think it's him wanting to be this martial warrior and embody that particular knightly version of masculinity. I think that's a really key part of his identity as a king. And so the way that he's able to do this is to compete in tournaments actively and showcasing those martial skills. And I think he doesn't have those opportunities in the same as Henry V when it comes to warfare. It's kind of, I guess, the next best thing for Henry is that he then actively participates as a knight. And that feeds through to the designs that he has for his burial tomb, which I've written on more recently, that he wanted to have this huge effigy of him on horseback in armour. So I think it's harkening back to that golden age of chivalry where he sees himself in that medieval context and that's what spears him into the tilt yard to be a knight in shining armour. That's so interesting because of course we think of Henry VIII through Holbein's picture of him chiefly. That was the first thing that comes to mind when we're thinking of him embodied and not just a sort of head. But actually, perhaps had he had his way, the image that he wanted to plant in our minds, the minds of posterity anyway, doesn't care about any of us, of course, was this idea of him as this knight on horseback, fighting, perhaps the horses rearing up. Perhaps he's got a lance, I don't know. You can tell me how it was designed. But there's that sense that that's absolutely crucial to his self-image, even at the very end of his life. Yes, the designs that he has for himself on horseback, it doesn't give a description as much as him having a lance or if he's ready to head off. But I think the fact that he is in armour, you get that image of someone who is ready and waiting for battle. And it says lively in armour. That's kind of the quotation that's unearthed from John Speed, who uncovers this manuscript in the 17th century, which is now actually lost. But it gives a description of Henry on horseback, on top of this great triumphant arch. And yeah, he is lively in armour. So for me, that's a really active display of masculinity. It's not what we see in Westminster with Henry VII laid down peacefully, hands in prayer. It's a very active poise. And the fact as well that he wants to be buried at St George's Chapel, again, even more so aligns himself with chivalry because that is the home of the Order of the Garter. Henry wants to be buried alongside Ebb the Fourth near Henry the Sixth, how he positions himself. So it's that kind of continuation of his ancestry and aligning himself with his grandfather. And I think again that speaks to that medieval context. Henry is a, made a member of the Order of the Garter from the age of four. He is crowned on the feast day of St George. He is known to have four images of the patron St George, more so than what he does other saints. And I think, again, it's about positioning and aligning his kingship in that medieval framework that he chooses to be buried at St George's Chapel. And we know that he is really active in the Order of the Garter in terms of its membership as well. So for me, I think the choice of burial, as well as the design of the effigy, feeds into that knightly embodiment of kingship. Yes, and it seems that there's an interesting interplay here between kingship and manhood. And perhaps actually 
I was creating a false dichotomy when I mentioned Holbein because the picture of Henry that Holbein paints is one who looks like he's just got off a horse and that he's you know, his legs are splayed. And it's also one where he has none of the sort of accoutrements of kingship, he doesn't have an orb and a scepter, he looks like a man. And I suppose the key to this is understanding that while Henry's competing as a man with these other men, in an age where the idea of what someone looked like was thought to resemble who they actually were, actually being this wonderful horseman, this wonderful jouster, reflects back on his capacity, his aptitude for kingship, in the same way as when they decried Richard III as being deformed, they're saying that he's not suitable for kingship. Is that right? I definitely think so. And I think this as well, Henry is, especially when he comes to the throne, he is what you'd expect of perhaps more of a medieval king in terms of his stature and his height. He's been over six foot two, he's athletic in frame as we spoke about. Um, he kind of mirrors what Edward IV is like as a king being over six foot three and again athletic and they both come to the throne as teens and I think that active display of masculinity he does embody what you imagine as perhaps more of a medieval monarch. There is a relationship between manhood and perhaps we haven't looked at kind of stature and height and maybe taken it as seriously as other physicalities. But I do think that image and presence of how he looks is really important to his kingship and how he wants to be perceived as well. So jousting, in other words, is performing all sorts of important roles. It's kind of a training for battle or at least it is at least training up their muscles for battle it's binding nobles to his side it's creating the sort of cadre of people who are loyal and he can rely on and he can trust and it's proving that he is this king in this crucial physical way that embodies all these qualities of medieval chivalry but it's also blooming dangerous. Right? So we know that he has a jousting accident in the 1520s. And we know that he was jousting against Charles Brandon, Duke of Suffolk at that point in time. Now, I've always wondered, given that we don't have information for the January 1536 accident, the one that left him unconscious for two hours, about who he was jousting against, I've always wondered if it actually wasn't a tournament and instead he was tilting at a ring or practising, basically. What do you think? It's a really interesting point because there has been a lot of discussion about whether or not he was jousting or if he was riding. And because of when it happened in the January before the May Day tournament, it could have been that he was training for jousting contests that were going to be forthcoming, especially because between 1527 and the 1530s, there was a bit of a lull in terms of tournament activity. So you can imagine that it's one of the, sort of the first newly staged tournaments in the 1530s that perhaps he needs to with his change in body shape at this point in his 40s, that he does need to retrain his body for this form of competition. One of the things as well is that Henry isn't seen to be wearing a bassinet, whereas if you were taking part in a jousting contest, you would have been properly armoured. What's a bassinet? So a jousting helmet. So there has been discussions about if he was jousting, he would have had a jousting helmet on and he would have been properly equipped. The fact that he wasn't, which is why he sustained such head injuries. And, you know, it wasn't uncommon still then the 16th century that if you were riding or training that you weren't necessarily wearing all your armoured pieces. 
So it could have been that he was tilting the ring or running at the ring and training for jousting as opposed to actually competing against somebody in a tournament because there's no tournament that I know of in that month where he is supposedly having this accident. It isn't until the May Day tournament that we have this first tournament in the 1530s. So what I kind of argued in my PhD was that he was training for a tournament, that he wasn't actually competing in an event like he was in the 1520s against Charles Brandon. And that is because he sets off before he's lowered his visor and Brandon's already halfway down the tilt yard, hasn't realised because obviously he can't see because he's got limited vision and he strikes Henry in the face with his lance, which just shatters all in the king's face. And it's actually such a lucky escape for Henry because that style of accident is what happened to Henry II of France and he died from his jousting accident in 1559, whereas Henry actually gets back on his course and he runs six more runs on the tournament track. So he runs six more times. And I guess it's kind of a way to prove his masculinity that he's survived this accident. He's still manly. He's able to get up and run six more times. I think it's also lucky and fortunate for Brandon that it is Brandon because he is such a best friend of the king that I think there isn't perhaps anybody else who would have gotten away with that. But I think in that context, because they're both being treated as men, as equals, Brandon walks away free from that occasion. But he does promise that he's not going to joust against Henry again, and that's at the point at which he does retire. So I think he's realised himself that he's probably had a bit of a lucky escape. He doesn't want to tempt fate again. But yeah, I do think the 1536 one's an interesting one. I'm not completely convinced that it was a tournament. You alluded to one point earlier that I just want to absolutely get on the record. I've always said that King's jousted for real. Is that true? Did anyone let Henry win? It's difficult to know. I think there are definitely examples of Henry losing it in contests. The jousting checks prove that Henry did not always win. However, I do think there are jousters, such as Brandon, for example, who are clever at manipulating the scores. It's a fine line, isn't it? Because Henry wants to have his contest in the tilt yard as exciting, thrilling battles. So he doesn't want a landslide victory. He wants to be seen competing against men who are the best because that's how he confirms his masculinity and puts himself as the head of that leaderboard. However, there are definitely occasions that you can see in a couple of score checks where he's competing against Brandon, for example, and they're both scoring really well and it's on the final run that it looks like Brandon's missed. So he's judged it in a way where Henry effectively believes that he's just beat out Brandon. But because Brandon's such a good jouster, it's unlikely that he would have missed on a final run because he tends to score on every single run. So it's difficult to know. It was often in Brandon's favour. So obviously, if that's the area where he receives rewards in the political sphere, he becomes an knight of the garter for a duke and all these accolades from jousting it's difficult for him not to, on occasion, allow Henry to win. But it was difficult to gauge on the checks itself. It's not the case that Henry wasn't a good jouster. Henry was a very good jouster. And on the occasions where he's let down by his opponents, he is visibly frustrated and annoyed because that in itself doesn't help his masculinity when he's just winning against someone who is obviously a poor jouster. He has to win against the best to really prove himself. But I do think on occasion clever courtiers maybe manipulated the scores to make it look like Henry had just won. Yes, I suppose it's very hard. I've asked you an almost impossible question because 
on the basis of the checks, all you can do is speculate whether someone has let Henry win or Henry has just won. I mean, it's impossible to say, I suppose. One final fun question for you. Jousting is the official sport of the state of Maryland in the United States. And there's been some talk about the possibility that it might become an Olympic sport. Would you like to see jousting come back as something we all can watch? I definitely would. And I just think it's so thrilling to watch as a spectator. I think even if you aren't necessarily interested in sports, I don't think you have to be to watch jousting. It kind of has everything because you have a scoring system inbuilt. It clearly is technically very difficult. It's dangerous. I think that's the only thing that would maybe put me off watching it if they were making hits on the head, for example, because in all seriousness, I have spent a lot of time speaking to reenactors and they have had friends of theirs on the circuit that have had quite serious injuries and accidents. And I think it was back in 2007, the time team that one of the reenactors did die, which is horrendous. And so I think if it's managed and if it's about the skill of making those hits, in more regulated conditions where, you know, we're just making hits on the body or maybe Coronel's is hitting each other's lances. But it's definitely thrilling to watch. And I do think there's a huge technique involved and a huge training process as well, as we've spoken about, which I imagine will still go on today for jousters who will have to work out. And probably it's got the same lifespan as well. I imagine that you don't necessarily get jousters in there. Maybe sixes today, I could be wrong, jousting. The ones that I've all spoken to have been a lot younger. But I do think there's definitely merit in jousting as a sport, for sure. That's wonderful. Well, this has been a wonderful insight into something that was so important to the culture of Henry VIII's court, indeed Edward IV's court. And I think what you've told us today gives us such insights into something that we can just kind of overlook as being this source of amusement, but actually was vitally important. Thank you so much for telling us about it. Thanks very much for having me. It's always fun to talk about jousting. It's a fun aspect of research. Thank you so much for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. Take a moment, if you would, to rate the podcast wherever you listen to it, including on Spotify. It really helps new listeners find the show and we want to spread the Tudor and Not Just the Tudor love. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.